Well, hello, podcasters, and welcome to a special Halloween-themed episode of our Banking Litigation podcast, where we're looking to shed some lights on the latest legal mysteries. I'm joined today by my co-host, as ever. Hello, Kerry. Hello, John. And our special guest, Charlotte, a senior associate in our Banking Litigation team. Good afternoon, Charlotte. Hey, John. Hello. So, uh, what are you dressing up as for Halloween? Well, it's funny you should say that, uh, Kerry. I was um, directed to a website yesterday called Clearway Law. Have you heard of this? And it had a, a picture of me um, as a Victorian. I'm not sure why that was. So, um, yeah, you know, you should have a look afterwards. Do you know what the Scottish term is? Put, hang on, should we put a link in the show? <laughs> let's, let's not do that. Um, but for those of you who are interested, Google Clearway Law John Corrie and you'll see a... Victorian sporting a mighty set of lamb chops. Do you know what the Scottish term is for uh, what you call trick-or-treating down here, Karen? No, I do not. Guising, as in disguise. And you know what they call um, a pumpkin with a face carved in it? No. They call it a tatty bogle. Oh, I like that. Mm. Tatty mm. bogle. Sounds like the name of a band. Well, yes. Well, anyway, let's uh, get cracking. Uh, let's get the old legal cauldron brewing. Uh, and first, I'm going to do a deep dive into the dark corners of a hair-raising thriller of a case, Henderson and Jones and Ross. In which case, in which the High Court rejected an allegation of dishonest assistance against a bank. So very briefly in the background facts, the claim concerned the restructure of a company that was allegedly facing significant potential liabilities arising from the poly-implant prosthese implant scandal and the threatened imposition of a backdated VAT charge on cosmetic procedures. And the end result was that the restructure was to cause the main trading company in the group to divest itself of all tangible assets and trade, leaving significant liabilities within the group. Now, as you might expect, the claimant uh, creditor uh, argued that the restructuring was a scheme to defraud the creditors of the company and avoid paying liabilities. And the creditor argued that the directors of the defendant company had breached their fiduciary duties and that the bank, as a secured lender to the company, had dishonestly assisted those breaches of duty. Can you remind our listeners, John, of what a claim for dishonest assistance involves? Yes, I certainly can. Uh, These claims, Kerry, involve an allegation that the defendant, here the bank, dishonestly assisted a fiduciary, for example a director, to commit a breach of fiduciary duties, uh, such as the general duties of directors under the Companies Act 2006. Now, for financial institutions, it's important to note that such liability, if established, may result in vicarious liability for the employer in respect to the acts of individual employees. Beautifully explained, John. Nice. (laughs) Um, Claims for dishonest assistance are fairly common causes of action against financial institutions, but this one seems like quite a novel scenario. What did the claimant argue exactly? I agree, it certainly is uh, novel. The claimant argued that a senior employee in the bank's restructuring unit had turned a blind eye to... Your shoes are squeaking there, or is it something creaking around under the table there, Charlotte? It's my shoe, I'm afraid. No, no, not at all. Um, So, uh, where were we? Yes, uh, the, the claimant argued that a senior employee in the bank's restructuring unit had turned a blind eye to the detrimental impact of the restructure of the company and its underlying purpose to defraud creditors. Uh, and the claimant suggested that the bank, being secure in its exposure, was only interested in refinancing its loan to the business. The plot thickens. Mm. So what did the court say, John? Well, the court held that the customer's directors had not breached their duties to the company uh, and therefore no question of accessory liability and dishonest assistance on the part of the bank arose. However, the court also confirmed 
that it would have in any event rejected the dishonest assistance claim, even if it had found the directors had acted in breach of fiduciary duty, as it could not be said that the bank had failed to act as a reasonably honest person by not asking further questions. In fact, the evidence indicated that the bank had taken, uh, and I'm quoting here from the judgment, a significant interest in its customer, close quote, over an extended period to ensure that the business was turned around and where an issue was identified that the bank took specific legal advice and proposed actions consistent with maintaining the company's business. So I think the decision highlights the importance of the bank's inquiries all meticulously and contemporaneously documented. Yes, you cannot go wrong with contemporaneous notes, Kerry. That's fantastic uh, uh, insight there. Um, no, but unfortunately for the claimant, the High Court and the Court of Appeal have both uh, banished uh, it to the pits of hell uh, insofar as permission to appeal has been refused. Uh, now, anyway, if you'd like to read more about this decision uh, podcast, there's a link in our blog post uh, to the show notes. Now, over to you, Charlotte, uh, for a spine-tingling sanctions update. Thanks, John. Mm. Um, so my case is Mints and PJSC National Bank Trust, and it's a very topical Court of Appeal case, which confirmed that UK sanctions don't preclude the entry of judgments in favour of Russian sanctioned parties. This judgment seems to have caused some palpitations in the market. Can you please spell out to our (laughs) listeners the context of the appeal? Um, Well, so the appeal arose in ongoing proceedings brought by two Russian banks, and I'll refer to them as NBT and Bankot Kretia, in respect of an alleged conspiracy. And the bank said that um, representatives of the banks had conspired with the defendants to enter into uncommercial transactions with companies connected with the defendants. And prior to the judgment that we're going to look at, the claimant banks obtained a freezing injunction in support of the proceedings. However, during the proceedings, Russia invaded Ukraine and Bankot Kutia was made a designated person for the purposes of the UK asset freezing measures against Russian entities. And what about National Bank Trust? Is that a designated person as well? No, and that's an important point. NBT is not a designated person. It's 99% owned by the Central Bank of Russia, Mm -hmm. um, but the Central Bank isn't itself a designated person either. And that's actually all very important background information to understand what the defendants did next, which is this. Um, The defendants sought a order to stay the proceedings, arguing that the UK asset freeze restrictions extended to NBT as well and that the imposition of sanctions precluded judgment being entered against either of the claimants, so both Fortecretia and NBT. So Charlotte, at the outset, you said that the Court of Appeal confirmed that judgments can be entered in favour of Russian sanctioned parties. So the court agreed with the claimant banks on that point. Can you unpick, unpack that for us a little? Of course, Kerry. The Court of Appeal agreed with the High Court's ruling that the principle of legality was engaged, And that's a principle of statutory interpretation, which provides that fundamental common law rights, such as the right of access to the courts, can only be curtailed if that's clearly authorised by primary legislation, whether expressly or in clear and unambiguous implicit terms. And applying that principle of legality, the court found that the relevant Russian sanctions regulations don't amount to a clear and unambiguous prohibition on the court entering judgment in favour of sanctioned parties. And for those podcasters who are interested, the relevant regulations are, I believe, the Russia bracket sanctions brackets EU exit brackets regulations 2019. You definitely get a treat for that one, John. That's my brackets. 
Uh, well, thank you. And I also understand there was another argument spicing up this application based on the defendant's argument that they would be prejudiced if the proceedings continued. Something about the Clement Banks not being able to lawfully satisfy adverse costs orders or something like that due to sanctions. What did the Court of Appeal have to say about that? Yeah, that's right, John. So to that, the court said that the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation, known as OFSI, is entitled to license a sanctioned party to pay an adverse cost order, security for costs or damages on a cross undertaking and damages. Um, and it can also license payment of a cost order in favour of a sanctioned party. I see. And, and did the court make any other notable findings? Yes, it did. And although obiter because of its primary findings in the case, the court considered the question of whether NBT is a controlled person under the 2019 regulations. Now, the ownership and control test under the UK sanctions regime sets out circumstances in which companies that are not themselves designated must be treated as subject to asset freeze restrictions on the basis of their ownership or control by such persons. And contrary to the High Court's findings, the Court of Appeal concluded that there's no carve-out to the ownership and control test for control exercise through political office. And so on that basis, it can be said that Vladimir Putin, Russian president and himself a designated person, might be deemed to control, and I quote, everything in Russia for the purposes of the regulation. I know you said that this was obiter, but this finding may have spooked UK businesses dealing with Russian counterparties, especially state-owned entities and government bodies. But in an effort to resolve some of the uncertainty, I understand that the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office published a statement on the 18th of October noting that it's, it is carefully considering the impact of the Court of Appeals decision in this case. Uh, yes, that's right, Kerry. So the statement says that the FCDO will look to designate a public body where that's possible when designating a public official if it concludes that the relevant official was exercising control over the body. And further, there's no presumption on the part of the UK government that a private entity that's based in Russia or incorporated in Russia, or indeed any jurisdiction where a public official is designated, is in itself sufficient evidence to demonstrate that that official exercises control over that entity. Huh. Uh, well, look, fortunately, this statement helps to support the common sense conclusion that the UK gov government did not intend for all uh, Russian companies to be subject to sanctions restrictions uh, by virtue of Mr Putin's designation and may provide some comfort to companies that they will not face enforcement action solely on the control theory articulated by the Court of Appeal in circumstances where they deal with non-designated private sector Russian entities. I agree. However, I would like to remind our listeners that the statement doesn't have force of law, and so an amendment to the legislation would be the best route to clarity here. Um, for our listeners who might be interested in more detail on that decision or the FCDO statement, there are links to the blog posts in the show notes. Thank you, Charlotte. Now, moving away from specific banking litigation uh, case developments, Kerry, I think you might have some exciting procedural updates for us, if procedural updates are ever exciting. I'll try my best to make an job. So firstly, I wanted to dig up a recent High Court decision which might hex the traditional notion of without prejudice correspondence. In Jones and Tracy, the High Court ruled that inter-solicitor correspondence on the possibility of engaging in alternative dispute resolution wasn't automatically without prejudice as marked. That's intriguing, Kerry. So is the marking of without prejudice more of a trick than a treat? And I should also say, 
ADR is no longer the preferred nomenclature in the commercial court, Kerry. It's now negotiated dispute resolution, NDR. So I only know this because you emailed this yes, to I did. me I yesterday. Did. I, I didn't change it because I think our listeners are going to be in the same NDR place. podcasters, if it's in the commercial court, ADR elsewhere. Please continue, Kerry. I, I had to Google NDR to well, understand what the N is. Um, doesn't make me wrong. Move on. <laughs> <laughs> negotiated. Anyway, in terms of um, the marking of correspondence, it is not determinative. So here the court emphasised that the without prejudice protection depends on the true nature of the communication and how it would be understood by a reasonable recipient. So while markings are considered, the context and content play a crucial role. That's quite an interesting point. But how does it relate to ADR processes or or NDR NDR processes? Well, the decision suggests that discussions about engaging in ADR, NDR, (laughs) may be more likely to be open than without prejudice. Uh, Parties often want the flexibility to refer back to such communications, especially regarding costs issues. So this might indeed indicate a shift in the perception of NDR. In civil proceedings. Absolutely, John. The court's approach aligns with the growing acceptance of ADR-NDR as a standard element in civil procedure. In fact, the recent proposals by the Civil Justice Council support the idea that the court should be able to access communications on NDR proposals, but not anything that discloses the substance of the negotiations. A thrilling thought. Um, so Kerry, what's next? So next, and I, to, I thought that was quite interesting, you having kind of belittled the idea of the procedural update, that was quite... I'm belittled it, I'm just, just <laughs> indicating the preferred nomenclature, and I'm also slightly concerned about that shift away to making things more open. Mm, mm. Me too. Um, so next up is the Supreme Court's decision in Republic of Mozambique and uh, Privenvest shipbuilding. Um, the case turned on the correct approach to Section 9 of the Arbitration Act of 1996, which allows a party facing legal proceedings to apply for a stay of the proceedings if they, consi- if they concern a matter which, under the arbitration agreement, is to be referred to arbitration. So although not set in a financial services context, the case will be of interest to financial institutions, as it demonstrates that in considering whether or not to grant a stay, the court will analyse the substance of a claim rather than how it is presented by the parties. The court emphasised that for a a stay, uh, a matter, in quotation marks, must be a crucial part of the claim or a relevant defence. So did the court banish Mozambique's claims to the underworld? It sure did, John. So the court ruled that claims involving bribery, conspiracy and dishonest assistance were outside the scope of the arbitration agreements in a number of related supply contracts. And on that basis, a stay was refused. Moving on to foreign enforcement. The next procedural update is the case Investbank PSC and El Husseini. Uh, And in this one, the High Court held that there is no common law rule preventing enforcement of a foreign judgment in England and Wales, simply because it's not presently or fully enforceable in the relevant foreign jurisdiction. In this case, it concerned an Abu Dhabi judgment for amounts due under two guarantees, um, and that judgment was not enforceable locally because after the judgments had been handed down, there'd been a subsequent change in the law in the UAE. Nevertheless, the High Court did not see this as a barrier to the judgment being final and conclusive, and therefore enforceable here. 
I see. So the change in law failed to mask the effect of the judgment. Indeed. Um, and I have one last update in my goodie bag. Uh, new rules for fixed recoverable costs have risen uh, from the legal crypts. Effective since the 1st of October, these rules, like mischievous ghouls, haunt claims up to £100,000. Uh, quite the legal potion, Kerry. What's brewing in the new regime? Claims will likely be allocated to this intermediate track if they meet the following criteria. So no more than a three-day trial, two experts per party, and a limited cast of two claimants or defendants. But beware, larger commercial cases remain untouched. Spooky. A haunted house indeed. How about non-monetary relief claims? In that case, the court decides if they join the spooky fun on the intermediate track, if the court considers it to be in the interests of justice to do so. Fascinating. Well, thank you, Kerry. And uh, I assume there are links to all of these procedural updates in the show notes. Absolutely. <clears throat> well, there we are. Thank you, uh, podcasters, for joining us for uh, this seasonal uh, update. I-, I understand, Kerry, that Nick Robinson of the BBC Today programme is concerned that news avoiders are causing his uh, his audience to drop. And all I can say is ours continues to increase. So it can't be down to that. Um, but thank you very much for keeping the show alive, Kerry, uh, and our visitor, Charlotte. Uh, thank you to you podcasters, and thank you to Erin for recording it. Uh, this is Erin's last show, so goodbye, Erin. Thanks, John. There we are. Spooky. All right, speak soon. Take care, podcasters. Goodbye. <laughs>